Amen. Now, friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our study in this book of beginnings. We are in Genesis chapter 3. We'll be in verses 16 through 19 tonight. But let me remind you where we've come from and how we got here. What we've seen already in Genesis is that God created a world very good. And he uh, created a, a garden in a place called luxury or delight and made a man, Adam, and placed him in there with an abundance of every good thing, including the presence and enjoyment of God himself in friendship. God withheld nothing good from Adam in the garden. And God gave to him a lifelong friend, Eve, to share life with, to live as image bearers of God and to rule the world under God and for his glory and to fill the world by procreation with other image bearers. And it was a glorious gift and task, but Adam and Eve fell. And we don't live in that world now. This world is not that world. Not in the way it was created. She was deceived, we saw, by the enemy of her soul, a fallen angel. And she believed a lie, but Adam was undeceived and with eyes wide open, knowing he was breaking God's law. He turned his back on his father in heaven. And so Adam and Eve... We're in rebellion. And so sin and evil came into this world. And we saw the horrible effects of that. We've already seen how, what did that produce? It produced shame. They wanted to hide. Like all of us, when we've done wrong and feel bad and know we've done wrong, we don't want people to know about that. They didn't want God to know. And they hid themselves in the garden because they were afraid of God. And then they were isolated from one another. Even as husband and wife, they're all on their own. Adam can't even mention Eve. When God confronts him, where, where are you, Adam? Oh, I, 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 he says. Nothing about Eve. They're at war with one another. And they're alienated. And, and there's misery in the marriage. And there's, a, there's hard hearts that won't own up to what they've done. They won't take responsibility for it like us. And depraved hearts, hard hearts that won't repent, that won't say, Father... I have blown it. Please forgive me. They won't do that. But God in his grace comes to them and he woos them and he finds them in the grace. He calls out to them, Adam, where are you? Do you know where you are? Do you realize that what you have done has made you hide from me? Adam, I love you. I made you. Adam, where are you? God wooing them with his grace. And finally, what we saw is this, is God begins to to mete out the consequences of their sin, he confronts first Satan, the enemy. And then tonight, he confronts Eve and Adam. And to Satan, he cursed him. But in doing so, he promised us the gospel. We saw that last week. As someone is coming who will crush the head of the enemy. That's Jesus is coming, and he's going to do that. And so tonight, God imposes the consequences 
on Adam and Eve, and we want to think through what they suffered and what we suffer in them. Let me invite you to consider that from Genesis chapter 3, beginning now at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amen. This is God's holy and everlasting word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we pray tonight that you would be our teacher, and that you would speak to us through this. Grant that the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A construction company invited various contractors to submit bids on a project, a very expensive project, uh, on a major building complex. And all things being equal... The contractor who submitted the lowest bid would win uh, the uh, project. He'd get the job. And so needless to say, the bids needed to be submitted in secret. You couldn't know what your competitors were offering. Well, on the last day of the bidding process, one man, contractor, walked into the office of the president of the company with a bid application in his hand. To his surprise, the office of the president was empty. And so there he stood alone, and there was the president's grand mahogany desk. And catching a glimpse, he noticed the bid of a competitor sitting on that desk. And for a moment, he was greatly tempted. The only problem was that there was a can of Coke sitting directly over the most important figure in the document, the final bid. If, if he could just know the amount that his competitor had bid, then he could change his if he needed to uh, and reduce the price and win the award. So there he is, and he's nervously pacing the floor, knowing what is at stake, and he contemplates a move for the can. He touches it, and he decides he can't do it, but then glancing around the room later, he realizes again there's still nobody here, and Now, confident that no one is looking, he lifted the can quickly, intending to glance at the number and put it back instantly. And when he did, hundreds of BBs rolled out of that can all over the floor. And you see what happened. It was a setup. The contractor experienced the law of unintended consequences. He thought he could control the fallout of his own dishonesty, but he discovered that unforeseen events had been built into the temptation, and one single act had repercussions he could not have anticipated. Uh, 
The can of soda was not what it appeared to be. That's the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. As they conspire together against God. So simple an act. So difficult it's undoing, said one. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. But they took and ate. And in doing so, they rebelled against their creator. We've looked at some of, some of the natural consequences of that. We mentioned the shame and the guilt they felt. And the hard-heartedness and the, the, the alienation they experienced in their marriage. We looked at, at how uh, they were afraid of God now. And they wanted to hide. And they wouldn't take responsibility for themselves. But they were always blame-shifting. Oh, the real problem here is not me, they said. It's the spouse you gave me. Oh, and by the way, you gave me that spouse, they said. The real problem here isn't me. It's them and it's you. This is... This is humanity. This is us. This is you. Those are some of the the natural consequences of their rebellion. But tonight we consider the imposed consequences. Natural consequences are different than the imposed consequences. The natural consequences are like this. You know, when you have a small child, we've had a number of them. When at the dining room table, they tip back their chair, having been told, don't tip back in your chair. When they arrive at that tipping point and their eyes burst forth with fear and anxiety and they fall flat back. Well, the natural consequence is uh, fear, anxiety, pain, suffering, surprise. The imposed consequences are when dad then says now. You're done with your dinner. You disobeyed me too many times. Well, tonight we consider the unexpected imposed consequences for Adam and Eve. Last week we saw what God imposed on the serpent. Very briefly, I want to remind you of that. Because as you hear what he says to Adam and Eve, I don't want you to hear this without hope. Because Adam and Eve did not hear these things without hope. What is it God said to the serpent as God cursed him in verse 15? He said, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God, in other words, said, Satan, you think you have Eve on your side? And she's joined you in the rebellion? Now I'm going to separate you from her. She's going to be brought back to my side and you and she are going to be at war with one another. That's the first consequence to the enemy. He doesn't win. God foils his plan. And then there's going to be this host of descendants at which there will be enmity. And we saw it will culminate in a male child, a he, he who will, at the end of verse 15, he will bruise your head, a mortal blow. He will stomp on you in victory. That's Jesus over the enemy. And yet he himself will suffer a bruised heel. You, Satan, will bruise him. And that's Jesus on the cross. The point of great weakness when Satan thinks he's triumphing and all of humanity is saying, crucify him, away with him. That's when God saves us. And so we saw there's hope. And having just promised them the hope of this redeemer, you have to hear that when you hear what then God imposes on them. And that we'll come back to that tonight as we consider this. But God is going to impose pain and sorrow. And misery on Adam and Eve. Causing to be great 
I shall cause to be great your sorrow, he says to them. And so God makes trouble a consequence for sin. And so I want you to consider tonight this passage. I want you to see first the troubles of the woman. Secondly, the troubles of the man. And thirdly, how do we understand and handle our pains that are much like theirs? So those three things tonight. In the first place, I want you to see the woman's pains, her troubles, miseries, and sorrows. At verse 16, God says to her, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain. You shall bring forth children. That's the first thing he says. And then he speaks to her marriage relationship. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So in two significant relationships in her life, there will be misery and sorrow. In her relationship with regard to children and childbearing, and then also with her spouse. Uh, Consider those two. In the first place, he says to them, the whole process of childbearing and rearing will involve pain and sorrow. Now multiply your pain here doesn't mean that she would have experienced pain in the garden and now it's going to get worse afterwards. That's not really the the idea behind this, but rather that there wasn't pain and now it's going to cause it to be painful. There's going to be a lot of it. You men may remember Bill Cosby's take because a man can't really understand any other way. His take on the pains involved in just simply giving birth to a child. He said it's, it's like, you know, you take out your lower lip and you pull it out and you lift it over your head. Okay, that, that must be what some of that pain is like. I, I, I don't know. But what we need to recognize is that this is actually talking about far more than just the physical pain of delivery. There will be that kind of physical pain, but the word can refer to even emotional and physical heaviness and sorrow. Her monthly menstrual cycle is involved here. And fears about or even living with infertility are here. And once getting pregnant, nine months of considering if she'll deliver a healthy child and whether she'll survive the birth of that child. It's only in a world in which we have modern medical help that women regularly survive giving birth to children. And those children themselves born, will it be born healthy? Will it live and survive? In the history of the world, more children have died in the womb statistics say, than have been born into this world. Our family experience, like so many of yours, has been like this. My mom had three or four miscarriages before she had five children in nine years. But she experienced great sorrow and pain. My sister has two boys. One who would not be here today would not have survived infancy except the modern miracle of of, of valve transplants and aortic shifts, you know, that surgeons can do in just the early weeks of life. He otherwise wouldn't be here today. My, my brother had a twin daughter die the day before the other twin was born. 24 hours before, they were both fine. And then in 24 hours, an infection took her life. 
My wife and I have experienced multiple miscarriages, as have so many perhaps in this room. Here's some helpful pastoral advice I once learned the hard way. Never tease married people about having children. There's a lot of heartbreak in the world about having children. But then consider when you do have a child. Here's what your mom did for you. Yes, you. Years of nursing, feeding, changing nasty diapers, wiping runny noses, potty training, endless piles of laundry, feeding, doing dishes, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, hopefully, worrying, disciplining, giving, 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 grieving the hurts that you experience on your behalf. Her heartache of raising a perhaps hard-hearted child who was born in sin, certainly, and may have grown up with a rebellious heart. Tearful prayers to the Lord for your safety and spiritual health, if you had a godly mom. And saying no to a thousand other things she could do that are more fun than serving an ungrateful human being. And you think your mom should be grateful she had you. I may have imputed the pastor's heart to you on that one, but uh, what was the last time you told your mom you were thankful? And not for passing you the salt or giving you a little allowance money, but for years of loving sacrifice in the face of great difficulty. Sorrow, hardship. When have you asked forgiveness for breaking her heart? (laughs) And we might ask this question, have you forgiven your mom and dad yet? Because they didn't get it all right. Because in the midst of raising a sinful child as sinful people, and amidst the pressures of that, they succumbed to weakness and sinned themselves and failed you. They're human, and perhaps they took out their emotional heaviness that they couldn't handle themselves, and they laid a load of guilt on you. Have you forgiven them? Do you understand them? Because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, God promises heartache in raising children, multiplying difficulty. But he also says there will be difficulty in her marriage relationship. Notice that. It's, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and you shall rule over him. Now, what's this getting at? Marriage is going to involve conflict, tension, competition, and abuse. What does it mean that your desire shall be for your husband? Well, some have mistakenly seen here sexual desire entering marriage now at this point as if that good gift of God hadn't already been given in the garden, as if it suddenly enters the world with sin. But that isn't the case at all. And of course he felt passion for her husband as he did for her. It's a profoundly wrong interpretation. This is a very unusual expression. And in just a few words, it's used only in one other place in the Old Testament. It happens as, as it happens on the next page. And so in light of the basic foundational biblical Bible study principle that we should let the scripture interpret scripture... And that scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. And when in doubt about the meaning of a phrase, we should check other places where that same phrase is used. 
letting more clear texts interpret more difficult texts, you should know that this phrase, your desire shall be, or its desire shall be, but you shall rule over it, that phrase appears in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. If you have a Bible, just scan your eyes over there. This is the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain gets angry at his brother and at God. And the Lord says to Cain at verse 6, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's a nearly identical expression. What's that saying, friends? That expression there, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It, It's saying something like this, friends. Sin, Cain is being warned, sin desires to control you, to master you, to conquer and dominate you. It wants to have unnatural authority over you. And so what God is saying to Eve is you're going to want to dominate your husband In a way you were not designed to, to rule him against the way marriage was designed. You were, Eve, after all, called to be his helper. A place of great dignity as we we looked at. Okay, No denigration in that expression at all. God is the helper of his people. But she was not made to rule over Adam. And it says her husband will rule over her. And that's not right either. Not in this context. What God is saying is he's supposed, of course, he's supposed to fill the role of headship over her. In other words, he's supposed to take responsibility for her well-being by loving her and caring for her. By serving and cherishing her. He was supposed to protect her from the enemy. And he didn't. He was supposed to uh, promote her spiritual well-being, and he didn't. He was supposed to sacrifice his own life like Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. He was supposed to do that for her. But now, now something unnatural is going to happen. He's going to rule over her, dominate her in a way not designed. So you see the conflict that's set up here in marriage? Either she's going to try to master him, and he'll let her by being too passive. Or she'll try to master him, and he'll dominate her, perhaps, by being too harsh, by being too aggressive, by being unkind, physically, or sexually, or emotionally, or verbally. That's the conflict she'll live with. That's the conflict, friends, you grew up with. Your parents' marriage faced constant or occasional, whether public or private, bouts of tension between mom and dad. Maybe it was because mom tried to control dad, and dad let himself be controlled, but he hated himself for it, and he resented her for it. So he was either too cool in his affections, or passive and hands-off and disengaged at home, to avoid the fight, or he was overly aggressive and domineering and forced her to relent, and she resented him for it. It happens. You model at home. In even the best marriages was in some way dysfunctional because nobody gets this perfect. And I want to say to you, dear friends, if you aren't married, you aren't ready to get married until you can, ex- until you can 
respectfully acknowledge you need a new paradigm, one that surpasses even mom and dad's, that you need the paradigm of Jesus loving the church in self-sacrificial love and the church in response respecting Jesus. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, why this is such a big deal, because you aren't married yet, and I understand that. Or maybe you don't have kids yet, and I understand that. You can't imagine yet how fully capable you are of absolutely destroying another person. You aren't scared of you yet like you ought to be. And like marriage and having kids will teach you in a way that's actually good for your soul. Because it will teach you not to trust yourself, but Lord willing to teach you to trust God. For the help to love the way you ought to love. But friends, I want to say this. It's important to be reminded about these things. Because so often if you're in a marriage that's dysfunctional. And you feel the weight of that. And you look out at your friends and you think they have such a wonderful marriage. Everybody else has got such a great marriage. And it's only mine that stinks. You can begin to have a self-pity party and say to yourself, well, the grass is greener on the other side. And if I could just get out of the marriage I'm in and divorce this person, I could get a different spouse. And things would be better in that relationship. But friends, that isn't true. Because we all bring our junk and we all bring the consequences of the fall in a fallen heart. And the imposed consequences of this in our relationships. And so you see what's going to happen in her life as, as both she's going to experience suffering and sorrow in having children and in her marriage. And yet God in his kindness says you will remain married. And to Eve, she will have children. There's blessing here. But now to the man, what's he going to experience? Verse 17. What are his pains? Well, he begins, God does, by reiterating the reason. It's because he listened to the voice of his wife and not the voice of his father in heaven. And no, that's not an argument. That is not an argument for a husband to ignore his wife. (laughs) The godly counsel of a wise woman is to be treasured. As Proverbs 31 says, a wife of noble character who can find she is worth Far more than many rubies. And the the, the teaching of wisdom is on her lips. Uh, A wise woman should be listened to. A godly woman. But Eve was deceived and Adam was a fool to listen to her at this point when he knew his heavenly father's instruction and Eve's contradicted it. And he was a fool. And so what does God say will happen to him? Well, obviously, on the one hand, he's going to share in the miseries that she's been told she'll have. Just as she'll share in his miseries, he'll share in hers. It's not like we just, these aren't isolated to one person or the other. But notice very pointedly, God says, well, you are going to experience the misery of toil in your work and frustration because of the curse to ground. His work and his labor of the earth is going to be filled with frustration. But there's a kindness here. He's still going to eat, but it's going to be by the sweat of his brow. The ground is cursed and is only going to produce food through toil and sweat. And when it produces things that shouldn't grow will grow easily. Thorns and thistles. And things that should grow are going to come hard. 
And so our automobiles rust away and termites eat our homes and moths destroy our clothing and mold takes over moist bathrooms and computers crash and destroy all our work. So instead of saying the dog ate my homework, we can say, oh, dear professor, my paper got ruined because my computer hard drive died. It happens. And he will lack success, the kind of success he hopes for. Every day he'll get up to serve his family in some job, and he'll come home frustrated. He'll fail at times. Things he's worked on will get destroyed through no fault of his own. The world, you see, does not obey the man, and our dominion over it is but a shadow of what it once was. And this is exhausting, friends, and it's relentless work. There are few who enjoy the luxury of the kind of prosperity and ease in which they need not toil at all, but simply pay others to toil. And so he's going to experience that kind of misery, and then at verse 19, at the end, he's going to experience the misery of death. You will die physically and return to dust, God says. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return, he says. What an irony. The king of the earth, for that is what Adam was made, shall now become a slave of dirt and then return to the dirt as dirt. This is what he will suffer, friends. This ought to help you understand yourself. Why do you feel bad? Why? Because our relationships and our responsibilities are prone to misery. We feel inadequate to handle them. We feel insecure. We feel too incompetent to fix them. We despise ourselves for our failure and our weakness and our inability to control everything and get success. And yet we aren't supposed to be unfailingly happy and successful in this fallen world and we feel bad because we envy everybody we think is at the top of the game right as if they live above these consequences they don't but we so easily think that they do you know if you think uh people others live without these kinds of sorrows then you either don't know them very well Or they are pretending in their relationship with you. We all experience difficulty. For women, life is hard. For men, life is hard. Don't look for this to stop in this life. And don't believe those who say that if you just come to Christ, it will be easy street. It will stop in heaven. But in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. You know what I found so revealing about listening to and reading debates by outspoken atheists like Christopher Hitchens, now deceased, and Richard Dawkins? That when pressed on their argument that God doesn't exist, and it begins to not hold up against the Christian view of an intelligent designer, They both run to the same thing. Well, then, they say, if there is a God, he certainly did a lousy job. I mean, look at all the pain in the world, they say. Any of us could have done a better job than God did. As if they deliberately forget Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
that God made the world beautiful and good. And we are at fault for its corruption and judgment. God lays on us the responsibility for these miseries because of our rebellion against him. He has not been unjust in any way for what he has imposed. He warned them ahead of time what they would get. And worse, it's actually his kindness that he has restrained the imposition of immediate, sudden, eternal physical, and spiritual death. It's a mercy. And in fact, it's another sign of God's goodness that that he imposes misery because it means he's not indifferent to evil. But it does mean life is full of misery. So then we want to close with this question, friends. How do you and I, how do we handle our own miseries? And we've got to begin with this question. If in verse 15, God promised them pardon through the gospel, through a coming redeemer, And he did. And he gave them hope. Why does he now give them misery? Is he double-minded towards them? On the one hand, he promises them a gracious redeemer redeemer who's going to crush the head of Satan, their enemy. And yet he's so double-minded that he turns right around and he imposes these difficulties. How do we understand this? And how you understand this will answer the question, how you handle your own difficulties, friends. And John Calvin, I think, frames the question and answers it beautifully. Listen to what he says. When God had before shown himself propitious to Adam and his wife, having given them the hope of pardon, why does he begin anew to exact punishment from them? Certainly in that sentence, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, In that sentence, he says, the remission of sin and the grace of eternal salvation is contained. But it is absurd that God, after he has been reconciled, should actually prosecute his anger. They who imagined that punishments are required as compensations have been preposterous interpreters of the judgments of God. Listen, for God does not consider in chastising the faithful what they deserve. But what will be useful to them in the future? And he fulfills the office of a physician rather than, and, than of a judge. Therefore, he says, the absolution which he imparts to his children is complete and not by halves. That he nevertheless punishes those who are received into favor is to be regarded as a kind of chastisement which serves as medicine for future time, but ought not properly be regarded as the vindictive punishment of sin committed. Do you see the issue? If I'm pardoned for sin, and Jesus took all sin's penalty in my place, then how do I understand my sufferings? Is God out to get me because he's double-minded? He gave Jesus for me, but then he got confused, or he went back on his word, or he, he forgetful? No. Is he for me or against me? Or is he somewhere in between? That's the issue. Calvin says God is a physician toward his pardoned children. But he is a judge toward the rebellious. 
The great physician, in other words, is healing his children of the poison of sin. And the gospel is his cure, and fatherly discipline and disciplinary chastisements prune us for heaven, and God uses trouble to chastise believers. And in all these sufferings, says Calvin, God partly invites us to repentance, partly instructs us in humility, and partly renders us more cautious and more attentive in guarding against the allurements of sin for the future. So the writer of the book of Hebrews says to dear Christians, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And he quotes Proverbs, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproving him. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So I say to you, friends, be careful with your heart and examine your heart. You know that the same pot of boiling water will harden an egg And soften a potato. The trouble, friends, the trouble can make you hard against God with bitterness. Or soft towards God to be molded by him. Satan uses our troubles to make us mad at God so we'll run from him. And God uses our troubles to drive us to God for grace to help in time of need. And this is a sobering thought, friends. For those who reject the Redeemer, the only hope offered in this text, they will face God in their sins. And there will be a day of reckoning before God in which you are given what sin truly deserves. And in that case, friends, all the suffering and misery you have ever experienced in this life is but a small foretaste of what your sin deserves. But there is a way of escape that God delights to offer to you, and that is in Jesus. Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who was like us in every way, suffered the worst there is, and got hell on a cross in our place in judgment for our sins so we could be forgiven. Which means God is for us and not against us. And so we need to let, as Christians, we need to let our miseries in this life wean our hearts from love of this world and move our hearts to long for the world which is to come. That world purchased by Jesus, promised in God's word where there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the old order of things will have passed away. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would do good to our souls by this word and that it would be a seed planted that would blossom and bloom and grow up to eternal salvation. And we pray that you would comfort our hearts with the knowledge that Jesus suffered for us and like us. And we ask that you would come and help us in the midst of our difficulties and confirm in our hearts that we are the beloved children of God because you discipline those you love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now let me invite you.